0: good and helpful book. Uh, To to encourage you, my wife who can barely stomach me talking about this all the time (laughs) actually really loves this book. It's really readable. It's really accessible. um, And so I I hope you find enjoyment in it. Uh, Wilkin, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, rather than a kind of century by century history of the church. This book is gonna tap into sort of what is the spirituality of early Christians? What do I mean by spirituality? Because that's often deemed a mystical word. What do I mean by spirituality? Because we want to be clear here because we're gonna talk about the spiritual vision. We're gonna talk about spirituality in the early church. What do I mean by that? Their piety. So we have a spirituality, and, it, and it's merely uh, what is our pietistic vision? How do we practice the both inner faith and the outer faith? And then Chadwick translated Augustine's Confessions. Uh, we're going to read Augustine, like I said. Uh, every time I read Confessions, I feel as if uh, it's a window into the chaos of my own soul. I, I, you'll you'll probably catch yourself at times weeping over his story because he he interlaces so well how the Spirit of God moves in his own soul as he's writing on this uh, his conversion kind of his conversion story. And then we're we're going to read two medieval works. Madigan, Nguyen uh, Hova. Nguyen Hova. Take a pick. Look them both up on Amazon so you can maybe see a table of contents. We're not going to read these until the end of the semester. Take your pick. Which one are you kind of drawn to? Um, uh, Madigan is going to be a very rigorous probably more on the rigorous side, Newenhova is gonna be more on the introductory, but it's only gonna talk about the theological uh, vision of the medieval church. So take your pick, whatever one you want to um, kind of use, by all means, uh, by all means, you get, to, you get a pick there. Uh, flip on over to assignments, see where it says summary and reading reviews. I don't know if any any of you have ever done this but I want to have you write three kind of uh, summary uh, reviews each review should be at least five pages a five page review double spaced two pages summarizing the book two pages listing both strengths and weaknesses to be balanced we have to learn how to talk fairly about stuff so try to detail three items that were really helpful maybe three items you wanted more clarity on, it's really good to try, to try to be able to do that. And then obviously one page articulating your response. Uh, in your paper, the student should also consult two published book reviews. So go on the library, uh, go on ATLA, if we're familiar with that. If you're not, I can help walk you through how to find that and to help you find uh, a few available Uh, Book reviews that land in journals academic journals. What I don't want are blog posts. I want you to find academic book reviews uh, that have been peer reviewed and insert uh, two of them uh, by way of footnotes. By way of footnotes. Uh, lecture and primary source reflections. I'm going to come back to this in a minute when we talk about our schedule to kind of describe what what are we looking for there. Kind of what's the, what's the expectation? So I'll come back to that. Flip on over to D, where you see Augustine's Confessions spiritual reflection paper. Uh, in the opening lines of his um, Confessions, he says this: "Our hearts are restless." until they find rest in you. It's a very famous expression by Augustine early on in the confession. And and so what I want you to do is I want you to read Augustine's confession, but reflect upon the spiritual value of this book. And there I try to provide another five-page rubric for you. Can you define and describe... Augustine's spiritual vision or how he describes spirituality identify any three sections of your choice and essentially what you're doing is you're providing a close reading Uh, in this process i want you to learn the process or i want you to learn how to read these ancient figures and offer close readings of their material and then reflect uh on the spiritual benefit in your own soul no, no other resources are needed. If you want resources, by, by all means, but it, it legitimately is you and Augustine in conversation. Okay, fair enough there, we okay so far? Okay, uh, major project number one. Uh, so every history class, we have a, oh my goodness, I blanked on the term. Help me out, um, what, what, what do we have to turn in? Oh my goodness! I need to know this. I have it written in here somewhere, and it just left my 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 mind. Good grief! Because we have to turn this in. Uh, um. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, of course I did. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're going to turn this into your. This is your e portfolio, like big project, right? So this is required for all history classes, right? So what I want to give you the option of doing, I want to give you the option of doing, somehow there are some students that in the process of undergoing their seminary training, they realize more clear their calling. I love the local church and want to do local church ministry. Some of you find the bug of, I am drawn maybe a little bit towards scholarship, and I didn't know that until now. I'm giving you two options. Pick whatever track you are on. on. One is not better than the other, right? One is not better than the other. Uh, So major project number one, I want you to write a research paper or I want you to write out teaching notes. Both of them are still going to be word for word. Both of them are still going to be embedded with research. So you still need to display the rigors of research that's required, but one of them is gonna have sort of a, an academic flavor to it. Uh, the other one is gonna have more of a personal communication element. Feel free to use I, first person, when you're writing this one, totally fine. Because what I want to give you is, if, if you're headed down the scholarship track, go ahead and try to write a paper in preparation for PhD, Letter uh, uh, paper submissions, if that's kind of where you're headed, or THM paper submissions, you have to provide a writing sample. Well, if you're interested in history, here's a very good opportunity for you to begin practicing that. We're good, excellent, thank you. Perfect, yeah, perfect, thanks so much. Um, but if not, and 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 hear me when I say this, who advances the mission of God? scholars or the local church, right? It's the local church. There is beauty in the local church extending and advancing the kingdom of God. So please, if you're wrestling with that, try to rightly appropriate how does the local church fit within my loves of scholarship. If that's you moving in that direction, the other side, if you're moving towards local church ministry, here's a great opportunity to present or have ready, maybe a 70, uh, sorry, a 40 minute, uh, talk for Sunday school or 40-minute talk maybe on a Sunday evening service or something that is of spiritual value to uh, informing uh, the, the local church about these options. So you have two options here. Uh, what I want to do is you have five topics to choose from. What I didn't want to do is turn you loose and say, pick any topic in the patristic world. I feel like you all would have been lost of not knowing where to go, what do I do, how do I do this? So what I did is I highlighted four topics in the patristic era, one topic in the medieval era that I thought would add value. If you want to pitch project six, email it to me, and I'll be more than happy to consider that. But I also only picked five because you can then team up to do research, right? At some point, one of you is going to be writing on the same topic as another. So figure out what you're writing on. Topic one, pro-Nicene Trinitarian theology. Essentially, you're going to look at 325 all the way up to 381. What is the development of pro-Nicene thinking? Second, remember what I talked about early about Macrina? This is that word. Basil of Caesarea and the Pneumatomachians. Right? To break down kind of the phonetic, Numa. To Machians, the spirit fighters. Maybe after reading Augustine's Confessions, you want to read Augustine on the Trinity. So do a close reading of his book on the Trinity. Topic four. Uh, Topic four, Patrick of Ireland and his Celtic missiology. Patrick of Ireland, trick question. Is he Irish? No, he's not. What is he? He's British. Excellent job. He's British. He's British. Uh, so uh, Michael, this is going back to Haken, my, my, uh, my friend and mentor. Uh, we have a book on Patrick and his uh, missiology. I played a very small part in it. So when I say we, it was him with. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote a few chapters in that. Um, it's excellent. And so we'll talk extensively about Patrick and his missiological vision. Um, and then Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas is a medieval. Maybe you're attracted more to, towards a medieval theology. Great. It's often known as the dark ages. I want to try to push pause on how we talk about that because often when we say the dark ages as the medieval ages is that the church is sort of dead. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. The church is wrestling through hard items, often at the scholastic level, rather than down low at the parish level, hence it feels dead. Okay, and we'll, we'll sort of talk about that. So the, the Dark Ages does not mean that the church is dead. But what we can do, Thomas Aquinas is, um, this is where we as Protestants, we as Baptists could benefit from a Thomistic Trinitarian vision. So to be Thomas, that's where I got Thomistic, so Thomas's Trinitarian theology, you'll find yourself being okay with some of his Trinitarian vision, and and, and, and that would be uh, totally fine. Okay, so we're okay on the topics to choose from. I want to help you find sources. I want to help you research these. I will give a talk on all of these so you can sort of get an idea of how to take it, where to take it, what to talk about. Okay, so we're good so far. Good so far. There are kinds of sources that I want you to use. I can help you find those. I can help you find those. Yada, 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 da, 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 There are extra credit options if you would like. Um, You can do a film criticism project. Look at major films that reflect these eras. Gladiator. Uh, I used to watch gladiator, uh, right before I started every seminary, uh, semester. (laughs) Why? I don't know, but I really loved the movie. I bet it, I bet it helped my loves of just having a kindling love of the Roman era. Who's the emperor, uh, that ends up dying and it switches over to a new emperor in, um, uh, gladiator. Does anyone remember? Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, 180 AD, at the height and pinnacle of the Roman era. Here's our next question. What church father is alive at that time doing Christian theology? Oh, those are now fun questions that we're going to be diving into. We'll dive into those. We'll talk about all of those. Uh, If you want to do uh, material culture, sort of what we're doing right here when we're talking about art, right? That's material culture. Or uh, has anyone ever been out to the Getty, right? Been out to the Getty in LA? Are we familiar that there's a smaller one just a little bit north called the Getty Via? That one is all about ancient Roman history. And so, yeah, go do a visual kind of extra credit project if you would like to, Um, by all means. Flip on over to the schedule. Flip on over to the schedule. Where's our reading assignments? Where's our homework? Where's our tests? Exactly. No test. This is a time where I want us to kindle loves for church history, and there's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. So what I want us to do is if we read items in class, I will bring all of that for us to read. Primary sources, I will bring all of that for us to read. If you can, look down on week five, reflection packet number one. This is where I wanted to talk about this. I uh, will post these online. Uh, I will post these online. Let me come all the way down here and I will show you sort of what this will look like. So you do not have this in your syllabus, but this is what it would look like. So a reflection packet is where I'm gonna send you on journeys to read primary sources and I'm gonna provide questions for you to begin asking questions of these primary sources as it relates to particular topics you have the option, you have the option of doing one of three reflection packets. So here's how this is gonna break down. Look at week five, and do you see reflection packet one is gonna be due? That means it's weeks one through five and those topics that you'll do kind of smaller readings on. Okay? Or you can do reflection packet number two, which is due on week 10. That would then consist of topics within week six all the way to week 10. Or the final one, which will be on week 15, reflection packet number three, that will consist of literature from weeks 11 all the way up to 15. Okay, so here's what what we will do. I will go ahead and post reflection packet one this week. Once I get Canvas up, someone bugged me about Canvas. I will get that up. Good. I will get that up and I will post reflection packet one if that's the one you want to do. Kind of look over these topics. Do I want to look more at the first, second century? Reflect on maybe the, the burgeoning of Christian thought? Do I want to look at uh, <clears throat> you'll read a text by Trajan? Trajan uh, is a Roman uh, 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 provincial governor and he reflects on some of the persecutions that he's going to put down into place. He's, he's, he's sending, a, um, uh, sending a note to the emperor, what do I do? And so this is his edict, what to do. He talks about how churches or Christians are being gathered. We're gonna read a little bit of this probably in class, uh, how, how Christians are gathering. There are deacons and they lock themselves in rooms and they're cannibals. What is he talking about? It's the Eucharist. Christians are, were known as cannibalists, not because they were actually eating flesh and blood, but because they were a group known as eating and drinking of the body of Christ, right? So this is how the governors looked at them. They knew that this was happening. Or do you want to look at packet number two, right? Packet number two will look more at the Nicene theology, figures in the Nicene heritage. Maybe if you're interested in looking at, uh, right, your big research project on Nicaea, this might even be helpful for you to kind of get a big, broad Perspective. I'm already going to have listed out questions for you to kind of be running with. Uh, if you look down there at week eleven, uh, even though this is packet three, look at week eleven. The topic that we're going to be talking about: Cyril of Alexandria. Who is this? I will we'll talk about him. I will. I will compel you to, <laughs> to take interest in him. I've been researching and writing on Cyril now for about five, four or five years. And so I'll kind of highlight a number of items that are there. But you can see what week one would look like, right? You're going to read about Suetonius. Here are some questions. Here are some items that I want you to reflect on. Pliny the Younger, I don't know if that's familiar. That's the provincial governor that writes to Trajan. What do I do with these Christians? You're going to read that. So I want you to do a little bit of research on who is Pliny, who is Trajan, and kind of read those items. And that would consist of week one. There is no word limit, there's no word limit. You do uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a rate that you think is satisfying. Okay, so it's gonna be a little bit subjective, okay. I just want you to take interest in some of these items and chase rabbits, right, chase rabbits on these topics, okay. So if you need help figuring out what packet do you wanna do, I'll ask you a few questions to kind of help situate where, where you're at in this process. Okay, we good so far? Any questions? Any comments? Any cries of outrage? We're good so far. I'm going to take a five-minute break, kind of rest our eyes, rest our back, go get some water, maybe have a restroom break. It's 746. Uh, Let's pick back up at 750. Sound good? Great. Let's take a quick five. Hey, thanks so much for helping. Yeah. That, was, that was a disaster. <laughs> okay, so tell me what I have to do for next time. So I now have the link, so I can now provide... Okay, perfect. So before every class. Or if you want to send it just once or post on Canvas. Yeah, can. okay. Um, and then I have the link too. Perfect. So what I would do is I'll open it, set it up. Oh, perfect. And then, um, okay. yeah, I mean. Okay. Yeah, and then we'll see if we can yep. have a back something. Perfect, perfect. Man, I so appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. part of extra credit. Yep. Extra credit. Say that again. No, 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 no. Fully extra credit. This is for, um, how to, how to say this is for the eager ones, (laughs) but I also know, but I also know reading and reflection might be harder for some students who are more artistic. This would be right up their pipeline or, you know, right up their right up their interests. And so I, I want to try to hit and be mindful of other learning interests. So yeah, have some freedom. Yep. Nope, no, okay. yeah, no, no. Uh, it could be in outline form like this. Oh. Yeah, it's, 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 it's you trying to put together early reflection notes on these topics. I'm really flexible. The only thing that I'll be tight on is uh, the paper. Yeah, that's it, that's it. Yes, so any of the papers, right, will need to be in Turabian. So not just the research paper, any of the papers. Yeah, yeah, any of the papers. Yep, thanks for that clarity right there. Do I need to plug this in? So, if this dies, are we going to lose everything here? Yes. Okay, good to know. <laughs> okay, good to know. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's go ahead and kind of get rolling into our topics. Use the syllabus to guide you and inform you what today is going to be all about. Right, so if you look at the syllabus, there are kind of three broad topics that we're going to be talking about. What is history, sort of why history, sort of giving an argument for the use and function of Christian history, I then want to walk through in our second kind of uh, uh, item on how to do history, right? I want to try to put a general framework in front of you on, on how do we do what we're about to set out to do. And then last, and it's going to be really brief, because I, uh, uh, is what do we do with social history? What do we do with the Roman world by which we're going to be talking a whole lot about? But what I don't want to do is I don't want to get bogged down in that, right? We're, this is a church history class. And so it's sort of like a, I don't know, something in the background, right? It, it's, it'll, it'll peek its head every now and again. But what we could do at a later time is study the Roman world. That's where we would kind of center in on some of these items. Okay, so let's go ahead and, and, and kind of start out. Uh, uh, offering an introduction to Christian history, trying to offer an apology so this is talk one. Uh, if you look at the syllabus, this is talk one. And what I'll do is I will try to push pause every now and again to, we're going to have discussion. I don't want to be the only one talking. So if there are items, just kind of get your attention that you have a question and I'll get to a point in the talk where I can push pause and then we'll talk about it. Sound okay? You'll, you'll learn how I function there rather than stopping mid Midway, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to kind of move forward with that. So Jane Austen, in Jane Austen's book, Northanger Abbey, Catherine Moreland, one of the characters, reflects on the role of history. Says this, I can read poetry and plays and things of that sort and do not dislike travels. But history, real solemn history, I cannot be interested in. Can you? I would have a hunch that this might even reflect some of our own thinking, some of our own heritage, uh, right? Let's, let's be really honest here. We love the Bible. We should love the Bible, but sometimes we don't know what to do with history, right? And so there's a sort of this kind of disinterest, if you will. And so often we view church history. Is it a collection of dead facts or dead artifacts? It's lifeless. Does it really have benefit to offer us, right? We, we could maybe vision it that way. We could maybe talk about that there's a subjective remembering of, oh, that's what people used to do, right? Sort of like this disdain uh, kind of distance that we want to, that we want to move away from. Uh, There was a time where I was pastoring in a church where there was a very anti-historical posture, right? Church history is pointless. Why do we need to know about church history if we have the Bible, right? That sounds really virtuous, right? That really does sound virtuous. But I wanna try to press into that a little bit to say, we're gonna see how church history shapes how we read the scriptures well, how we read the scriptures wisely. Or fourthly, church history is not totally valuable because we live in the modern era. Right? We have all these advances. We have lights, for heaven's sake, right? They didn't, therefore, we are far more superior. Right? Sort of the superiority concept. How often do we use history or consider history as a means of conveying wisdom? Have we ever considered history as a means of conveying wisdom. You know what? Since this is hooked up, this actually might be brilliant. I won't share this only because some of these items will be published. But what I can do, would this be helpful? You can then see where we're headed in terms of notes. Would this be helpful? Well, then let's do this. Okay, let's do this. I didn't even think of that until right now. This is the era of COVID. My whole life is on electronics. And so I made it my ambition to have nothing electronic with me (laughs) as I stepped into the classroom. And I'll still use this. Because I like using paper. Um, Maybe we'll do this. I need two of these. Say that again? Well, is there another one of these? Like is this? Yeah, if there is, that'd be ideal, thanks. Thanks, Zach. So do we consider history for wisdom? Have we ever considered using history on how to develop um, a vision of wisdom? Per se. One of the items that I want to try to articulate here, and I hope you'll feel it throughout the course, is Christian, a Christian historian as a vocation for one's life and for the church. A vocation for one's life and for the church. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people in the church who are flirting with Eastern Orthodoxy or or flirting with Roman Catholicism for the first time because they read Augustine. If I read Augustine, then I therefore have to become uh, uh, Roman uh, Roman Catholic. I just read Basil of Caesarea. I just saw an icon of Basil. Therefore, I'm starting to like it. Therefore, I need to become um, Eastern Orthodox. No, 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 no. So part of our role as good historians is that we know how to nurture the church. We want to know how to nurture the church in a good and rich historical vision. We want to know how to nurture the church in a good and historical vision. Over uh, evangelical, uh, evangelical concern, there's been a massive increase. Do we have something? Totally fine. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, Zach. This is brilliant. Um, yep, I'll let him do it. He's doing great. Uh, but over, over the uh, past uh, few years, there's been an evangelical concern for the reformers over patristic and medieval voices. And I sort of already highlighted that. I sort of, oh, it's on the wrong side. Nope, totally fine. This is great. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, that's great. Perfect, perfect. Thank you, guys. So over the past couple years, this is shifting. This is shifting. There's a love for Calvin. Of course there is. There's a love for reading Martin Luther. Of course there is. There's a love now for reading Spurgeon. Of course there is. But in recent times, this is switching a bit. And I think it's a healthy vision that more and more are becoming more interested in sort of the patristic vision. This is Bonhoeffer. I'm now reading Tertullian, Cyprian, or Cyprian. right? We're going to be good Latinists and others of the church fathers with great interest. In some ways, they are more relevant to our time than the reformers. If there are ever a good quote for someone who's interested in the patristics, that is money. Carl Truman, are we familiar with who Carl Truman is? He is a, a reformed Presbyterian theologian and historian. Currently alive, great Reformation scholar. Great Reformation Scholar, He says this, if I had my time over again, I would have studied patristics rather than the Reformation. That is pretty telling. That's pretty telling. According to Carl Truman, who is a Reformation scholar, according to Carl Truman, who is a Reformation scholar, He says that the Reformation is not necessarily not necessarily a recovery of the Scriptures, but a recovery of the right reading of Augustine. The Roman Church latched onto Augustine's ecclesiology, where the Protestant reformers latched onto Augustine soteriology, and so the reformers then. What was the Reformation about, according to Carl Truman? And I get, right? I totally get that is a big sweep of the hand. So give me some leniency there. But according to Carl Truman, he says it's according to who had the better reading of Augustine, not necessarily who had the better reading of Scripture. That's very fascinating. Especially if you find interest in doing this, I just want to try to paint a vision for how you could go about this, right? What I want to do is this, what we're gonna do in this class is just going to be a good vision for anyone to pick up how to do this. If you have an interest to keep going in this field, I also wanna give you that vision as well. And I hope through this process that you won't underestimate the beauty, the beauty of reading primary sources uh, reading the primary sources, obviously in English at first, because that's going to be what we're capable of doing. But if you know how to use Greek, use it, right? Use it to read them in the primary language in the same way. How, how many of you have taken Greek? Who's taken Greek yet? Who's going to sign up for Greek on Thursday? Yeah. Okay, I got one of you. <laughs> that's why I'm teaching Greek up Thursday. Uh, all two of us. <clears throat> that was a joke. But to even try to read them in the original language. So for example, right. My work with my work with Cyril, my work with Cyril, and I'll try to bring in a couple of these. He is an early, uh, uh, an early fifth century figure, his work, one of his big works on the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm sorry, two of his big works on the doctrine of the Trinity have never seen English. They've never seen English. So what should you make it your ambition if you're moving this direction? Learn Greek to make that source available for everyone in this room, right? You can see how this is an act of service. It's a gift. Uh, one, One of the things in Cyril is that I provided one of those translations. It's going to come out soon that we're finally going to be able to read a book by Cyril on the Trinity that has never seen English up to this point. <clears throat> obviously, uh, some of you are older than this. It's totally fine. I'm just trying to start as young. That's uh, never too late to do this. Spend your 20s getting Greek and Latin down pat as well, as well as getting a good grasp of at least French and German, especially if you're headed towards a THM, if you're headed towards PhD. These are the languages you want to be at least aware of to know how to use them. So that's the reason why I'm, I'm doing that. Know how to... Know how to use history. One of the things like looking back that I wish I would have done, I wish I would have maybe had a double BA. Uh, I look back with regret. I wish I had a double BA, one in classics, so that I, I feel like I'm constantly catching up in classics. Spend some time in your MA and MDiv with a focus on patristics. How does this look like in your Theology one course? What does this look like in your Theology one course? As you're detailing the doctrine of God or as you're detailing prolegomena, as you're detailing the doctrine of revelation, make sure to incorporate one ancient voice in the past to help you engage that. Right, so there's a way to begin incorporating these these larger sources. Uh, One of the things that I really enjoy doing, but it is so big and we're gonna feel it. We're gonna feel how big this is just gain familiarity with the bigger social world that we're gonna be walking in, right? Can we talk about the fall of Rome? The fall of Rome in 415, it falls again later in 476. Who's alive at this time? How does it affect the Christian church at this time? right, and so you're gonna hear me over and over again, and I want to express this clearly up front. Because what I want to do is I want to provide support to you. I want to provide support to you as you step into local churches to minister to people. Because I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had. I'm reading Basil for the first time. Therefore, I'm becoming Eastern Orthodox. No. I want you to hear this from me. I am a committed Baptist for our theological heritage, spiritual mothers and fathers uh, and exemplars of the Christian faith can inform our current expression. We mustn't think that the early Christian mothers and fathers have little or nothing to do with modern ecclesiological and or theological expressions. And so I'm now gonna quote a, a French Jesuit, right? Of all things I shouldn't be doing, but look at what he says. This quote is incredible. Every time in the West, That Christian renewal has flourished in the order of thought and of that life. It has flourished, what? Under the sign of the fathers. Meaning there's this renewal of the early heritage. Any questions so far? We doing okay? Any thoughts so far? Stand up if we need to. It feels hot. Are we hot in here? Is there, is there a way to cool it down in here? If, if not, it could just be me because I'm, I'm really active. Okay, we're okay? Okay. So why do we need Christian history? Moreover, why do we as Christians broadly need history? I think first, first, Christian identity intrinsically depends upon history. You as a Christian depend upon history. Reason and proof number one, the resurrection. That's a historical reality. Depends on if you've taken New Testament studies or not. But if you've taken New Testament one, you have probably heard about German liberalism. Maybe Ernst Casemann said that the resurrection really doesn't matter if we believe it or not, it's a conscious reality. You would look at that and say, no. The bedrock of Christian identity relies upon the historical reliability of the resurrection. So why do we need history? Reason number one, it's part of our bedrock. It's part of our bedrock. I already mentioned this earlier but to study history matures the person. It enables a sense of human progress. And, I, and, and we, we read this earlier of Cicero. To be ignorant of what occurred before you were born is what? Is to remain always a child. Notice what Cicero is saying. He is a Latin kind of uh, uh, rhetorician, first century B.C., To be ignorant of what occurred before you were born is to remain always a child. So in other words, in order to mature, we ought not to be ignorant of our heritage. So you can kind of see how he's reflecting on that. Third, kind of what's a third reason? Uh, uh, we, We should be interested in history to prompt Christian faithfulness, and to locate models of imitation. To prompt Christian faithfulness and to locate models of imitation. Right, Hebrews 11. We know this. It's the halls of faith. Right where the author of Hebrews goes through many different versions, or sorry, many different figures in the course of history. It's really fascinating. People occur in that list in the in-between era of the Testaments. It's fascinating there. That So what the author is doing is that he's pointing to even figures that are outside of the biblical testimony as models of faith. What does uh, Hebrews 12 talk about? It's It's a metaphor of running. What do we do? We ought to lay aside every shackle, the things that weigh us down, sort of like it feels like ankle weights because what are we doing? We're running a race. The Christian life is a running of the race and it envisions the Roman stadium, right? If you're gonna offer a first century reading, original setting, original context, of that Hebrews 12, we are in the stadium. What's happening? There's cheering, there's cheering. The author of Hebrews is inviting you to hear the voices of those who have died to press you on unto greater faithfulness. So I think at some point when we study history, there's a sense of valiancy that we see in some of these figures, I can't tell you enough. The moment my wife heard about Blandina, who is a female Christian martyr, and Perpetua, another, uh, uh, another uh, Perpetua and Felicity, uh, two early female Christian martyrs, to this day that conversation was three years ago. Still to this day, those three females, they provide like a spine to my to my wife's courage. Nicaea, the Nicene Confession, at some point provided a sense of security earlier on in my life when there were times of theological crises. What will people confess in the face of death? The confession of Nicaea. Right? So there's an element whereby when we read these figures, we are brought to bear. We see them for the first time as models of imitation. <clears throat> no one is a fool here, right? To learn the mistakes, why do we do history? To learn from our mistakes, We learn from the mistakes and successes of our ancestors, right? It's the the way of a fool who is right in his own eyes, but it's a wise man who listens to advice. This helps situate how we're going to use the fathers. This is going to help situate how we're going to use medieval theologians. Advisory. I think example one. <clears throat> Is anyone here familiar with the terms of social trinitarianism or relational trinitarianism? I don't know if those are totally fine. In two thousand six, this item uh, really came to the fore within evangelical theological discussion. Are we as evangelicals classical trinitarians or are we social trinitarians? And they were split down the down the 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 line. However. The logical ends of social trinitarianism goes back to that Nicene confession. What is the substance of the Son and how does the Son relate to the Father? Here's my favorite question to ask about social trinitarianism. <laughs> we can explore it more when it comes up. Answer this question in your own head. Does the Son eternally submit to the father. Does the son eternally submit to the father? If you say yes, it's a form of social relational trinitarianism. If you say no, it's a form of classical trinitarianism. You have to then ask the question, well why in the gospel of John it says that the son listens and obeys everything that the father talks about. The son's submission is related to his humanity, not to his eternal shared nature with the father. Right? So you can see how, that, how Nicaea right there just governed all that I just talked about to help us navigate what to do with that Johannine text. There's a famous adage. There's a famous adage that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Let's not forget that. The reason we can see the horizon is because of our forebears. I'm going to skip over that Lewis quote just to keep working. Why should we do history? To ward off intellectual superiority and to develop humility. Right? Our generation humbly and necessarily stands upon the shoulders of our predecessors. Robert Hooke, says in a letter to Isaac Newton in the 17th century, if I have seen further than you, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants. The giants of whom we stand upon have faults. Of course they do. But the reason we can see the horizon in a way that previous generations couldn't is because we're standing upon those who came before us. And there's good and bad elements to that. To quote even Richard Baxter, are we familiar with who Richard Baxter is? 17th century uh, uh, British, is he British? It's okay, he's in the, uh, 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 sorry, Richard Baxter, he's a Puritan, (laughs) not British, or the Puritan heritage. Tells you I'm not a specialist in church history too. That will be with someone else. There it is. Thank you. Why do we do history to extol the acts of God throughout history? Do we not today in our own life praise God for how we acts and what we perceive as miraculous acts for our own life to study church history. We're looking at how God acted in the past with other Christians the writing of church history is the duty of all ages because God's works are to be known as well as his word. This is a Puritan telling you love history and love history. Sorry, love scripture and love history. It's this both and concept. I've already shared this a little bit with you and I'll share more as we go along. There was a time where there was massive crises of faith uh, brought, brought to bear, struggled with inerrancy at, at, at a couple points, actually struggled with the resurrection, not sure if it was actual tr- actually true. Uh, part of what restored some of that uh, about 10, 10, 12 years ago, Nicaea. Nicaea showed me, and I've already mentioned it, What were Christians willing to die for uh, in terms of the Christian faith? The Nicene Confession that is derived from the scriptures is what people were willing to die for in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century. It's a rich era uh, as I even just reflect for a second, my own soul. Any questions? Let's take kind of a quick, not, not break, but like a quick breather. Let's pull out, uh, pull away from the notes. Any questions, any comments, any reflections here? Questions, comments, reflections. Add to this list. What else, what else could we possibly reflect on? What else could we possibly reflect on? What else could we reflect on? Okay. Yeah, fair enough. One of the questions that we ought to wrestle with is what do we do with the, the relationship between scripture and tradition? Scripture and tradition, right? It feels virtuous to say we believe in no creed but the Bible, right? I don't know if you've, if you've heard of that expression. One of the churches that I pastored at, that was rampant uh, among the people, what I want to try to do is try to provide a set of categories for us to think through, right? A set of categories for us to think through tradition zero is Bible only. What I want to call solo or nuda scriptura Bible alone, nothing else. All right. So that's going to be tradition zero tradition one as you could probably tell where we're headed that scripture scripture is what's called the norming norming norm normans norma it's a latin expression the norming norm Because what tradition one says is that scripture provides the basis of authority for all that we use in concert with tradition, right? In concert with, in conversation with, you can already tell where I'm headed, right? You can probably hear that I'm T1, right? I'm trying to, uh, we assume the scriptures as fully authoritative, fully clear, for all that we need in life and godliness, the training us uh, for reproof, uh, re- giving us reproof and correction that we might be fully equipped. What do we think tradition two is going to be? We can kind of see where this kind of typology is headed. What's tradition two? Uh, well, that's what one is, tradition with scripture. Add a nuance to that. Maybe the authority is Scripture and tradition. Right? So, in this sense, what the exactly what the Pope says and what the Scriptures say equal. Right? That Can would be, be a. App me to help that. Yep, there. The I agree. We'll find an app for that. <laughs> uh, scripture and tradition. On equal par, the human voice of the tradition, the human voice of ecclesial leaders matches the authority of the scriptures. I want to try to present and display a robust T1. Why does T0 sound very noble, but it could falter? Why? Someone tell me why. Why does it sound noble, but it's inconsistent at the end? There is no creed but the Bible. Bingo. It's inconsistent. It is actually a creed in and of itself, right? So it's self-defeating. (laughs) i <laughs> so glad you picked that up on that. There's no creed about the Bible. Well, you actually just created a tradition. So why not let's just be honest and say all people are going to be influenced by tradition, therefore let's pick the good and right historic tradition. But we do not bow the knee to tradition. Can Augustine be wrong? Of course he can. Is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as found in 1 Corinthians 15 wrong? No way, right? So you can see how we're gonna to try to balance these intention. Any questions on this? Because this affects theology. This is affects how we view uh, uh, what to do when we read Augustine. This also affects the discussions of what, what we do when in, in the life of your church. When someone reads Basil, sees an icon for the first time and says, I'm leaving your church and becoming Eastern Orthodox. You wanna sit them down and say, but I think you're you're falling falling into the trap of T2. Right? I can still be T1 and love Basil. Does that make sense? Do you kind of see that that tension? Any questions? Any comments on that? Any questions or any, go go ahead. People Are is. Yeah,: That's right. So what I would say to that is that it's actually creating a tradition in and of itself. So going back to the No Creed about the Bible is that they've created their own set of so if, if we can envision the scriptures, there's something above us guiding us how we use the scriptures. So what that statement was is that that's their own guiding principle than when they come to the scripture. So therefore, it is a tradition in and of itself. So we can deny history. Um, I wouldn't even know how to do that. <laughs> it's like your head in the sand. I mean, like, what's your view with, say... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That you that with, totally. Um, I don't know if this is kind of like a hard question, yep. but um, the things that you disagree with them on, in your consideration, would that make them like not a heresy would It would make them a heretic today, or how do you look upon them? And Very much there so. There? Very much so. We as Protestants already have a way of looking at Scripture. Protestant was non existent at that era. So we want to ask the question, where did the bishop come from, right? Why did the church eventually move from T1 balance to then T2 in the medieval era? What were the guiding factors to that? Why then do we describe the Reformation, not as a recovery of the scriptures, but a recovery of Augustine? Like it's a recovery of the good traditions. Uh, think of, I hate fish, so I don't know. I like fishing. I hate eating fish. Um, I like sushi, <laughs> I, yep. don't like trout, don't like, I like salmon. Oh, that's about it, I can't do another fish. Um, you have to skin a fish, but you can't just go from one end to one end without fear of eating what? Bones. There is good meat on every fish, right? Generally speaking, right? as the metaphor works but at some point you're gonna come across bones that you have to just pull out and we'll set it aside. What we don't want to do is that when we're reading Augustine, we don't want to force him to become a Protestant. He's not a Protestant because those categories are non-existent, right? In that, because what we wanna do, we wanna be very fair with history. The concerns of, of Protestantism are concerns about soteriology. The concerns about evangelicalism is a concern and a recovery of the primacy of the gospel. But what that doesn't mean is that, is that non-existent up until that point? No, of course not. Right. So don't force Augustine to sound like an evangelical Protestant. He's not. Those categories aren't even there for them. You'll even probably chafe a little bit at how he talks about salvation. Yeah. So you read them in the same way that you read, I don't know, John Piper. John Piper's wrong at times. We have to allow him uh, to to be errant. He's a human. So is Augustine, right? So is Augustine. Okay, good. Any other questions? We're good so far? See, what time do we break out of here? Are we done at nine or are we done at 10? Let's take a 10 minute break okay? What I want to do is I want to break up our time. It is totally fine. Um, I don't know. The, uh, help, help me. What's the policy of food and drink in the classroom? Is there a policy? Bring dinner. It's okay. We're in the evening time. Bring a snack. Totally fine. This is a very long class. I'm totally okay with that. What I want to do is I want to do, um, I'm actually really bummed that the, that the library closes at 7 <laughs> what my professor used to do and i now get it i now get it cuz my voice needs a break is that during break time he would go do research for like 20 minutes he'd go peruse a book in the library <laughs> so i totally get it now i get it uh it's 8:30 let's come back at 8:40 sound okay okay good Yes, yes. Yeah, remind me your name. Have we emailed yet? Uh, it's okay no, if not. You just email everyone. Totally fine, totally fine. Uh, Chelsea. So Great, Chelsea. The lecture yes. So, how does that form? I took like a brief yeah. on the screen. So how mm-hmm. does it look like in how? Do you... but yeah. I need to know if it's like. If it's what you strictly. want to be doing. Yeah, and if it's strictly from um, just a lecture or if it's uh, <clears throat> Not just the lecture, okay. but it's going to be topics that. We So that you know what you're diving into Does someone. uh, I had a couple of questions at the break wanting to know what the reflection questions would look like or the reflection packet would look like So I have what week or reflection packet one would look like if you want to kind of peruse that I'll be more than happy to pass this around if you want to look at it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you, I, I want you try to try to um, find it. If you can't locate it, always email me and I'll be more than happy to send you over um, uh, something real quick. I'm in the process of trying to put together a reader that would essentially accompany this. But in the meantime, I can point you to free text online if you can't locate it in the library or you can't locate it in, um, uh, online. Uh, C-C-E-L, C-C-E-L has a myriad of free ancient texts online. C-C-E-L. And if you need help finding that, I'll be more than happy to send that out. Yep, that's what we're going to do. Oh, goodness. So who, is, or who uh, is just starting their first year? Excellent. Drinking from a fire hose, night one. (laughs) Excellent. It's really good. Who waited to the last year possible to ever take this course? Okay, good. I'm assuming for the most part people are local, like Redlands, San Bernardino, Riverside-ish. Yeah. What? Where? where? Um, I'm originally from Reno Nevada, so i like, okay. living in Okay. So Got it. Just down, so. Oh, excellent. Are you guys living together? Okay. No, no. Okay. Excellent. Oh, that's excellent. So good. So good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I was born in Corona, Uh, grew up sort of in the Temecula area. Yep, if we're familiar with that, yep. Lived in Riverside, moved to Los Angeles, moved to Kentucky, and then back to Riverside with a few spots in between. (laughs) Uh, yes yes uh, so Louisville as a city not so much but uh, we lived in the suburbs right outside of the city oh man it revealed really quickly I'm a total city boy I didn't know that I didn't know that I loved Los Angeles living in LA was really enjoyable um, let's see if I have I don't think I have a picture of my family on my computer I'm going to show you a picture of my kiddos. Um, yeah, I can get this to you. I want to show you just my, my lovely family. Um, yeah, so both my kids were born in Kentucky. Uh, because I love, uh, oh yeah, here we go. We, we played around because my kiddos started uh, their new school as well. Um, and so we took first, uh, first day of school pictures. <laughs> we took those yesterday, so I'll put these through. Um, yeah, but moving out to Louisville, uh, yeah, culture shock indeed ultra shock indeed so here's my lovely wife two kiddos so the my girl is seven my boy's five she's growing up way too quick oh no okay nope oh yeah i don't know I have to stop sharing and then share a... Uh, yeah, yeah, you can stop sharing on your screen. Yep, okay. And then you can always restart. Yep. yeah, let's see what we have. Got it, here we go. So there's my, there it is. Yep, so that's my wife. And then my girl is seven, my boy is five. Um, let's see, does this come up? Let's see if that comes up. There it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, hit. maybe not. <laughs> they have to stop sharing every time. She's just grown up way too much. Mm-hmm. Like the show. Yeah. Uh, looks just like her mama. And then got a, like a little hipster photo of my son. My boy, my man. So he is—he uh, is five. All right. Well, good. Let's go ahead and get uh, rolling back on this. What I want to do is I want to be done in about. F- what time is it? It's nine eight forty-five. Let's be done at nine thirty. Is that okay? Perfect. First day, brains are fried. It's good to see people in person, but I also know that <laughs> sitting in class this late at night is, is pretty brutal. Okay, what I, what I wanna do uh, at, a, at a couple different levels here, I don't wanna walk through all of my notes here. Uh, what I wanna do is I wanna make a couple of good, or sorry, a couple of necessary distinctions they're going to help us in this process as we, as we as we go along so when we are talking about history what is it that we're actually doing right we want to figure out what we're doing right when we're talking about bible reading right we could be offering literary readings we could be offering exegetical readings we could be offering typological readings, we could be offering readings that are oriented around the authorial intent, right? So, so when, when we're thinking about hermeneutics and the Bible, we already have some of these categories in play. So what I want to do is I want to try to put some of these categories in play for us as historians, right? What is it that we're attempting to do? And what is it that we're going to try to accomplish? Okay. So, let me ask a very hard, odd question. What is the function of texts in the first century, fifth century, and 13th century, and how do they convey ideas? In other words, in other words, this is where we run into a little bit of trouble. What happens if I ask you how was your day? Right. Let's offer a simple kind of question like that. You say, well, or let's say I ask, what did you do in your day? You say, well, at about nine o'clock, I got gotten an argument with my, I don't know, someone on the street, someone, something, something. Two hours later, I got a flat tire Four, uh 45 minutes later. You would not believe something else happened. Did you tell me history? Is that good history? No, or yes. Is it objective? Of course it's not. It's history wrapped around your bad day. You didn't tell me you woke up at six o'clock. You didn't tell me that you had a really good kind of early morning run, right? So what is it that texts are attempting to accomplish? Okay, here's what makes this more difficult. As a 20th century and 21st century methodologies of history, we want books to be historically accurate. Is that how second century historians viewed themselves? That's right, no. Is it okay for a second century historian not to be objective and still articulate good history. Right? You can feel the tension, right? Do you feel this tension? So part of this is we have to act generously with our literature. We have to realize what era we're reading because first century history, fifth century history, 13th century history, all convey it differently, right? All convey it differently. They don't act like 21st century historians. So we have to figure out what are they doing? Are they trying to offer a motivated history? Are they trying to uh, uh, portray something in a positive light? What about this second one? Does each era assume a similar vision of history and how they tell history? Suetonius, who is Suetonius? Suetonius is a first century non-Christian Roman historian that talks about the first 12 Caesars. It's really fascinating how he tells history though. He looks at their birth. Uh, Looks at their early conquerings, talks about their virtues, talks about their vices, then talks about their death. So it's very categorized in how they're talking about history. Bede, who's Bede? An 8th century Christian historian. right? So what we don't want to do is we don't want to read Suetonius having the same questions, having the same motivations as would Bede. Okay, Uh, how reliable is what's called hagiography? What is hagiography? What is hagiography? Okay, how reliable is hagiography and history telling that accompany the motifs of a historian? Hagiography is a way of telling history that venerates the person. So let's say let's envision person A person A has a terrible childhood terrible teenage years terrible <clears throat> kind of when they're in their 30s but somehow get something changes by the time they reach 50 60 and 70 they're a very massive influential figure right objective history would talk about kind of the pitfalls and and kind of restoration of that person, what what would hagiography do? It would ignore the negatives altogether, right? Because it's an attempt to venerate the person, make them better than what they actually were, okay? What do we do with Eusebius? (laughs) Eusebius is what we now know what happens between the first, second, and third century. He is kin to Constantine, who just releases the Edict of Milan, 313, finally making uh, Christianity or the Christian religion permissible at the state level. And Constantine, who has this weird, odd conversion story, hires Eusebius to write a church history that sets up Constantine as the victor, right? So it's motivated history. So what do we do with it? Are we allowed to use it? Do we not use it? It's what if it's the only source that we have about the first, second, third century of the church? We have to use it. We just have to use it critically. We have to, we have to sort of weed out, okay, where is he being favorable? Where is he not being favorable? And that takes time. Right, that takes a whole lot of time. Yeah, go for it. Uh, oh, like in the scriptures. Give me, the, give me a quick example. I, I'm not... Yes, 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 very much so. Yeah, very much so. Because it's, it's piecemealed of what they're going to talk about, but piecemealed in such a way to make you, the reader, see all the positives. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. That was re- yeah, that was really helpful. Um, yeah, there's a few things I want to ignore. There it is, page 13. <clears throat> How to be a historian and how to do history. Here's where I kind of want to slow down. Make sure you take tight notes here because this is going to help you become a historian per se. How to be a historian and how to do history. Simply put, historians gather clues. They gather evidence from the past in order to understand and reconstruct an image of a particular person, place, event, or time period. If you notice something, you have to interpret texts, and it's you who has to tell a story. Right. So there's a level of interpretation that's at play here. So how do we do this? We have to gather and we have to read primary and secondary sources. So how do we do that? We want to learn the art. We want to learn the art of loving and reading primary sources. What's better, me telling you about Augustine or you going to read Augustine? Hopefully the latter. I want you to discover Augustine for yourself. So then that, what that does is that it helps you situate what to do with the secondary source. Secondary sources act like commentary they act like a friend to guide you in the primary source itself so primary sources are items that are directly associated with their producer or user or and the time period in which they were created so here let's provide a very quick tangible way to describe this is augustine a primary or secondary source it's a primary source Is your paper about Augustine that you give to someone in your church, a primary source or secondary source on Augustine? Secondary source, but it's your primary source. You see how how that works? So it feels like there's this dance between primary and secondary. The clearer or the quicker that we get that division, the better you will be right, in terms of this whole process use secondary sources use secondary sources to help you hunt down primary sources use secondary sources to help you organize and understand primary sources for example let's say we're reading the book of matthew matthew is a primary source uh, Dale Allison, ICC Commentary, one of, the, one of the better critical commentaries on the book. Why would you use a commentary when reading Matthew? What does it do to you? Helps elucidate things you're not seeing. It helps structure the way that you're not seeing in the text. It's a conversation partner. Same thing, same thing, primary text, Read it quickly read it often use a secondary text as you would a conversation partner and a friend They help tell you about new things. They help point out to you something you didn't see so forth and so on All right, here's the hard one Strive to interpret primary sources fairly and in their own culture. Oh, man, this is hard. What you don't want to do is make, like our discussion earlier, don't make Augustine sound like a Baptist Protestant evangelical. He's not. So don't force him into that mold. Read Augustine against the backdrop of his own world and let Augustine's vision bubble up. This takes time and it takes care. It takes time and it takes Next, as you are able, as you are able, reconstruct the social environment and the theological environment. Cyprian, late third century Latin father. He's in Carthage, Cyprian of Carthage. So first off, where in the world is Carthage? Part of the northwest area of Africa. What is the social concerns of his area? So for example, what is the government like in his time? Under what emperor does he reside? Have we heard of the Diocletian and the DCN persecution Cyprian falls into that window and so we're gonna we're gonna see how the emperor's edicts are gonna affect what's happening in church history proper and then we have Cyprian and Donatist what do we do with those who um, those who capitulated in the face of persecution are they allowed back into the church? Donatist, rigorist, and Cyprian, who attempts to navigate that. So now we can point Cyprian's debates, really, are with peers or with fellow people against the backdrop of what's happening in the social world. read secondary literature to expand your awareness and your introduction to primary literature. Okay, a method, how do we do this? A method, locate and read an introduction or locate and read the introduction to a monograph. Learn to locate the Brill volumes, learn to locate the Oxford University volumes and let them show you some of the primary texts as well as providing you a good bibliography of where to find good secondary sources. Read limited primary sources so as not to be overwhelmed, right? This is really overwhelming, I know that. We're gonna talk about origin. Uh -uh. Origins literature is massive. I have a good friend who wrote his doctoral thesis on Augustine and it was Augustine's sermons. That was it. Like Augustine has tons of literature. He has commentary literature, he has theological literature, he has letters. So what we don't want to do is we, we don't need to read everything all at once. That's where we just get overwhelmed and we give up, right? We totally get overwhelmed and give up locate the figure and read their prominent text first. It takes time, it takes time. I want you to learn how to then ask good questions of that text. I want you to ask good questions of that text. That's what this assignment is gonna do for you, right? Where I'm I'm showing you questions that I want you to answer of that text. Here here are a couple questions you could be asking, and I'm sure in that process, you will then find yourself asking more questions. Engage, assess, and display the arguments of the author. Engage, assess, and display the arguments of the author. Okay, ready? This is hard, this is hard. Be sure to avoid I agree, I disagree comments. Why, why? Be sure to try to avoid upfront, agree and disagree comments, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, or, uh, sorry, I couldn't t- <laughs> I looked over here. It <laughs> totally is, totally is. Uh, uh, yeah, you wanna reflect them. They're not scripture, so guess what? They're allowed to be wrong, right? Uh, Hillary, Hillary of Poitiers, Uh, He is a bishop that is contemporary to uh, Athanasius. He goes off into exile midway through his life, midway through his life. Before exile, he was unaware of the Nicene Trinitarian confession. So what was his Trinitarianism like? Subordinationist. It, It had Arian type features in it. He goes into exile, um, and it's in that area or in that time period of his life that he discovers the Nicene Confession. He then returns from exile and writes a big treatise on the doctrine of the Trinity. His pre-exile works and his post-exile works sound like two different persons. There's no need to make him a unified thinker. Imagine where you're going to be at when you're 70 years old, right? Are you going to develop? So did they, right? Allow them to. So this, you can see what types of question this begs. When we read Augustine's confessions, where did he write it? At what point in his life did he write it? And does he write anything after? Does he write anything before? Does he change theologically all along the way? Right? You can see the kind of questions that you'll want to venture into. So in the back of your mind, I'm sure you're asking, am I the only one that has no idea how to do that? Nope, you're not. This is all part of this process. It's all part of the process. Read three to five good monographs and journals on a similar topic to figure out what you might have missed. Read three to five good monographs to figure out what you might have missed. Okay, let's do this quickly. What kind of social, or what kind of history? What kind of history and what kind of social history? I'm going to use the board over here. Again, should I use this one instead? Uh, Would that be better? Yeah, Yeah, let's do that. Uh, So what kind of history? We want to ask what kind of history. The first item is social history. The first item is social history. Social history. Social history of the first century would look like this what are the customs of education or educational programs in the first century? Right. You can, you can see how you would have to navigate. How do we go about that? Another, another question would be, what is the geographical makeup of, of Rome or the Roman empire in 30 AD, 150 AD, three 50 AD, right? So geography changes. So you can see that social history is kind of looking at these broader items. What is the development of religion in the Roman world? We're gonna talk about Gnosticism. From where did Gnosticism come from? Where was it developed? How did it develop? And how did it influence the church? Irenaeus is among one of the first to address Gnosticism. There were fathers of the church that were Gnostics themselves that later repudiated it later in life. Cultural customs, right? If we were to talk about American social history, And let's just say we are talking about 20th century social history of America. What would we do when we talked about voting rights? Right, What, what was the voting culture at 1901? Women couldn't vote, right? We're now at 1950, can colored people vote? We're at 1980, What's the voting habit? Like you can you can see that even in our own history, if we were to look at the social history, we're we're trying to ask those same questions at the backdrop of 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 church history. So let's now look at various ideas of history within the church. So we could talk about ecclesiastical history, church history church history proper church history proper assesses the geographical origins or the geographical locations of the history it's looking at the institutions of the church it would be like this describe the church of carthage in the 3rd century that would be this type of question so we're not even talking about theology right you can see that We're sort of talking about the social history, but related to the institution of the church. We would assess institutions, we would assess timelines. Who set up the first school of Alexandria and how did it develop into its second iteration? Right, So, if Origen is the kind of the inst- instiller of the school of Alexandria, it then leads into Athanasius as the leader of Alexandria, it then kind of has a, an open period where it's it smaller figures uh, and then it, and then we see Cyril of Alexandria, so even the Church of Alexandria goes through different types of iterations. We then can look at. Institutions, the history of institutions versus history of persons. Who wants to try to say that word? (laughs) Prosopoeia or prosopography is the history of persons. I list out two different books there for you to where it describes... um, a prosopological history versus an institutional history. So you can almost look at my our syllabi and you can almost discern what we're going to do a little bit. We're going to do a lot of uh, prosopography, but you also have to know it's not the only way to do history. Right, we're going to do a little bit of both. We're going to do a little bit of each. And now we get into... Now we get into historical theology and history of dogma. So when we say, let's do church history, you now are more equipped to say what kind of history? Do you want to look at the social institutions and how the church reflected and lived within a social environment? Do you want to look at schools of thought or Or institutional educational points do you want to look at individual people or do you want to look at the development of theology in other words in other words what's the development and or what's the difference between the doctrine of God in the second century and the doctrine of God in the sixth century Historical theology would try to trace that, right? So you can see the complexity, but what, I, what I'm trying to show you are the, it's like a freeway, right? It's like the 91 freeway with 10 lanes. We have many lanes to do what we're calling church history, right, and so even looking at our syllabus, you can kind of feel the direction that we'll kind of be running in. You can feel the lanes that we'll be running in. It now makes, a, it now makes sense of probably some books that you read on church history. Maybe they just focus in on people, right? Haken's book is going to do a lot of prosopography. Haken's book that you're going to read, Rediscovering the Fathers is essentially a book of prosopography. Wilkin, no. It's going to look at histo- uh, history of dogma, as well as institutions, as well as people. It's going to needle be- between three kind of big options. Okay, we good so far? Any questions? Any commentary? How can we how can we clarify this? Go ahead. Totally. It's the study of persons. So if we were to say, if I were to say this, uh, uh, throw out answers, okay, with all these categories. So be vocal here. Try to be vocal here. Let's throw out answers. If I were to say, let's look at the Church of Britain in the sixth century, what would that fall under? Institution. And ecclesiastical history. That's right. So it's ecclesiastical history looking at institutions. Good. If we were to say, let's study Patrick of Ireland. Prosopography, because it's now the study of a person and kind of the movements of that person. If I said, let's study the relation between the emperor and the church at the fall of Rome. Say that again, social history, with a little bit of mixture of what? Yeah, ecclesiastical history with a focus of the institutions, yeah. So you can sort of see the broad lanes that we're gonna run in, does that make sense? Okay, perfect, good. So I'll be honest, I tend to fall back into prosopography. So as a historian, I know my faults, right? I tend to fall back into prosopography and I sometimes fall back into historical theology. Every now and again, I'll chase a rabbit through social history and I'll figure out how in the world does this relate, right? I, I, I find myself, I can't connect it, but this is part of being a historian. You're looking at primary data, you're trying to interpret primary data, and then you are painting a picture. Good historians make dead voices come alive. And that just takes time, it's hard, It's hard work, but hopefully throughout our time here, that's what we're gonna learn how to do. It's what we're gonna learn how to do. Okay, any final questions here? Any final questions on this topic? And then we're gonna do 15 minutes on the whole history of Rome. (laughs) That was a total joke. Yeah, there's no way I could do it. Okay, we're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. Okay. I don't want to get bogged down in this. I don't want to get bogged down in this, but it is worth mentioning. We want to know the early history of Rome. When we think of what did the church in Acts, what was it situated in? It's situated in, okay, tell me, is this better or is this better? One or two? One. Is that better? One or this one better? Okay, okay, we'll keep here then. Okay, so when we think of the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts is where we are picking up. That's where we're starting our study. When Acts ends, maybe, let's talk about this. Let's maybe provide better categories here. When the time of the apostles ends at the first century, that's where we are beginning in this class. 100 A.D., What is the world like at that time? What is the world like at that time? So that's the question that we're asking. We're in the first century, moving into the second century for our time here. And then we're moving where? Some good categories for us to think about the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the Roman era is underneath Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, after his death, Rome expands no more and begins to shrink, begins to shrink. So let's ask this question. When was Marcus Aurelius? You have your computer or phone, look him up. When does Marcus Aurelius die? Say that again. There it is. Not 118. Yeah, 180. Yes, 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 yes. 180. 180. That is the height of the Roman Empire. Marcus Aurelius is the last emperor, He's the last Roman emperor at the height of Rome. So after 100 AD, we have a couple of emperors that are often known as the five good emperors. It's kind of odd saying that because under a couple of them, we have Christian persecution. Christian persecution is often not global. It's often localized. Right? It's often localized. Ignatius of Antioch was led on to Rome to die at the hands of a lion. He's eaten and mauled to death. We'll talk about, we'll talk about martyrdom uh, at a later time. But it's really important to, when we talk about Rome, the Roman backdrop of the first century, the Roman backdrop of the first century. We want to talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome sought to distill the good life. It was the good and peaceful life led by the Roman emperor. This is merely pedagogical and It's a big sweep of the hand, but it's quick cues for us to memorize. In the first century, we have Greek culture, Greek culture, Roman rule, Roman rule, and Jewish, Jewish Punic, influence the big roman empire is you have roman government you have roman soldiers but it's influenced by greek culture that's why we call it the greco-roman influence or the greco-roman culture depending now upon where you're at is where you're gonna have these other influences. If we're in Caesarea, we're gonna have Jewish influence. What if we're in Carthage? Punic. We'll have Punic. So what Roman rule allowed for was multiple subgroups underneath its rule, right? Have you ever wondered why when you read the Gospel of Matthew, how do you have King Herod and there's also an emperor? Right, So underneath the emperor, in the Roman Empire, he allowed these little subgroups to have rule and dominion over those eras. As long as they did what? They did not disrupt the Pax Romana, and they paid taxes. That's what, That's what allowed them to stay. So I want to read this a little bit. The Pax Romana, according to Encyclopedia Britannica... Pax Romana, it's the Latin expression for Roman peace. It's a state of comparative tranquility throughout the Mediterranean uh, uh, reign, Mediterranean uh, world from the reign of Augustus all the way to Marcus Aurelius. We are verging on about 200 years of Roman peace. Augustus laid the foundation for the period of Concord, which was extended to North Africa and Persia. Uh, I could probably add Persia to this Jewish, Punic, Persian influence. What this is trying to communicate is that there are smaller subgroups. That's what this bottom one is attempting to communicate. The empire protected and governed individual provinces, permitting each to make and administer its own laws while accepting Roman taxation and military control, right? Think about the crucifixion scene of Jesus. You have Jewish leaders making law, but then they go over to Pilate. Pilate says, I have nothing to do with this and actually gives them back, right? Pilate is a very small governor as an extension of Roman rule in the Jewish Caesarea area. Seneca was the first to mention the Pax Romana, and he related it to the presence of the em- emperor. He says this, Such a calamity would be the destruction of the Roman peace. Such a calamity would force the fortune of a mighty people to its downfall just so long will this people be free from the danger as it shall know how to submit to the rain. But if ever it shall tear away the rain and shall not suffer to be replaced, if shaken and loose by some mishap, then this unity and this fabric of the mightiest empire will fly to the many parts and the seed of this city's rule will be one with the end of her obedience, end quote. And that such a calamity would inevitably lead to the downfall of the people. Pliny the Elder says this, the endless, boundless grandeur of Roman peace displays in turn not men only with their different lands and tribes, but also mountains, peaks, and soaring into clouds, their offspring, and their plants. May this gift of the gods last, I pray, forever. So truly do they seem to have given to the human race, the Romans, as it were, a second son. (laughs) You almost like you hear the pride of Roman presence. Their presence provided peace, according to their vision. Their presence provided the peace of the people. So think about it. If you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, Gladiator is Marcus Aurelius pushing the army up to its peak. It actually does a really good job of displaying the customs of Roman times. I think one element of the movie that it doesn't necessarily display uh, truthfulness is did Christians die in the Colosseum? There's actually very little evidence that they did. They died in other places and they died in other small arenas, but the Colosseum proper, yeah, there's there massive debate over that. But one of the things Gladiator, the movie, really does do is it displays Marcus Aurelius's kind of concern, right? Is Marcus Aurelius the philosopher or is he the conqueror? And he actually has those self doubts. And it's after Marcus Aurelius's death. Pax Romana comes to an end. We now start to see the downfall of Pax Romana. So let's ask these couple questions. Why in the world does this matter? What figure, how about someone do this for me? Someone do this for me. So here are a couple figures right here. You see these, these are known as the five good emperors. These are known as the five good emperors. I realize that Commodus is listed on there. He no longer expands the empire and it's under him that we start to see the downfall. Someone look up Ignatius of Antioch and tell me when he dies. Ignatius of Antioch and tell me a date when he dies. Give me a date 108, potentially up to 115. Under what emperor? Under what emperor? Oop, that's clear. Trajan. So, in order to learn and understand Ignatius of Antioch, we also want to know a little bit about whom? This guy, this emperor. What's the state of the Roman Empire during this time? Then we can start diving more into the theological concerns of uh, Antioch, of of, uh, Ignatius. Ignatius is among the first that says, tie yourself to the bishop and you'll be saved. Why? Why? He knows what he dies was just like, we're like years right after the apostles. He probably knows the apostles. The patron-client relationship started influencing church structure. What is the patron-client relationship? Even though everyone gives allegiance to the emperor, does the emperor pay the army? No. Rich, uh, Rich rulers, rich army men, then provide food, safety, and clothing underneath Uh, underneath him for all the soldiers. So if you are dependent upon your centurion, do you give allegiance to the centurion or do you give allegiance to the emperor when it comes to the end of the day? The centurion. That was the the patron-client relationship. You have a patron who is rich, has money, and he gives funds and he provides sustenance to those underneath them. Who is the book? Uh, The book of Luke and the book of Acts is written to whom? To whom? Theophilus. Theophilus. There's a debate. Is that an actual person or is it just a general idea of lover of God? Guess what? In the first and second century, there is a person named uh, Theophilus that is a ruler of a church can house about 150 people in his courtyard where church was housed. He has money. Of course that person becomes the bishop, right? He's the one providing safety, right? So it really makes sense. Why does the bishop come onto the scene? I think it's a patron-client relationship. Someone look up Justin Martyr. When was Justin Martyr slain? Another person, look up Blandina. B-L-A-N, Blandina, D-I-N-A, Blandina. Someone look up Justin Martyr. Someone look up Blandina. Who does he die under? Marcus Aurelius. His letters, his apologies, are to Antonius Pius. So when you read Apology One and you read Apology Two, they're addressed to Antonius Pius. Blandina. When does she, when is she martyred? She's a valiant woman. does she die under? Marcus Aurelius, once more. So you can start to see now that in order to look at the prosopography of Christian figures, we also have to know a little bit about the backdrop. This book, when did it come out? I just stumbled upon it. You can see I haven't broken in the spine, but I wanted to bring it When was it written? uh, 2009. Chris Wickham is a a good historian, but I just stumbled upon this one. The inheritance of Rome, illuminating the darkness, years 400 to 1,000. This is called a social history. He has zero concern for the Christian faith, zero concern for the Christian church, but he's going to describe the backdrop by which the church exists. So every now and again, we have to pick up these books to gain a glimpse of what's happening, right? But let's help us here. When we do church history, don't get bogged down with this. The end of the day is not to know Roman history. The end of the day is to know about the life of the church. Right, do you see how these lanes now intersect with one another? Okay, good. Last item that I want you to be aware of are these two dates. we go right here these two dates right here 410 the sack of rome it's sacked two more times before it's finally overthrown in 476 with the last roman emperor the downfall of rome is upon us someone look up the life of jerome when does jerome die When does Jerome die? He, under, he sees the first sack of Rome. When does Augustine die? When does Augustine die? 430. 430. Jerome and Augustine are contemporaries, okay? Both of them see the sack of Rome. Is anyone familiar with what's called the City of God by Augustine? The City of God by Augustine. It is a beautiful image of the twofold city, the actual city of Rome and the heavenly city of Christians. Augustine tried to present a two-tiered city for the church during this first sack of Rome. What does Jerome do? falls deeply into depression because he saw Rome, its presence as the sign of a flourishing Christian faith. So when Rome goes asunder, so does Jerome. So you start to understand that the backdrop actually influences all of these people in the same way today. In the same way today the political atmosphere, the social atmosphere causes us to raise new questions. causes us, it affects us as people. Don't be dismayed that it didn't also affect them. After 476, who's the big powerhouse? Who's the big powerhouse of the era, of this era? The Roman empire falls away and who rises to the place? the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantine Empire. I am no artist. I don't claim to be an artist. This is gonna be a terrible picture of the Roman Empire. Here's Italy. (laughs) The fall of Rome was by Vandals from the North. Vandals from the north. Uh, The Rhine River was frozen over and it caught the Romans off guard. It's bizarre how weather affected the fall of Rome. The Byzantines came from where? No, the Byzantines came from over here. So as Rome falls, all of the Roman era is now going asunder. They now only possess that. That's Italy. So it's essentially all that they possess. Right? They're, they're kind of thrown to a lower, kind of a lower powerhouse. This now creates the West and East divide as Byzantine comes up here with Constantinople and Rome as the two powerhouses. What are we about to jump into in 1054 AD? The schism of the east-west divide over the filioque. And it all coincides with what's happening socially. So the fall of Rome, late fifth century, the Byzantine empire rises up. We now have two large cultures One culture speaking Latin, one culture speaking Greek, what do you think happens to the church? Starts to fracture. and That's that's actually what we begin seeing. Language divide causes the church to fracture because the Greeks start to do things that are unbeknownst to the West. The West begins doing things unbeknownst to the East. Okay. I promised 10 minutes ago that I'd be done, so we're going to stop here. Any questions? Does this begin to elucidate kinds of questions that we can ask? Obviously this was a very small sweep of the hand identity items of the Roman Empire. We did a very thin social history. Put up basic dates, basic people, and trying to pit them or try to show where they coincide with church history figures. Okay, questions. Comments. What was, what was helpful? What was elucidating? What was not? What do we need to clear up? The lanes of history, okay? We have social history, institutional, people, theology. Okay, good. The concern for social history as a backdrop. Don't don't get sucked into it, but try to stay in primary texts. Okay, we're good. Go for it. No, I said earlier, because I'm gonna publish some of this, I don't want it floating around. What I would do, if we're gonna read Trojan together, I'll print that out and hand it out in class. That's more or less what I meant by that. I actually think this is a better idea. Does this help you track better? Let's do that. I'll keep doing this then. Yep, I'll keep doing this. Go for it. Can you do this real quick? Yeah, you let me know. Yeah, let me know. Absolutely. Send me an email and and we can figure something out. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, we're good. We're good. We're good. Okay. Let's go. Thanks for a great first class. Thank you for all of this. Yeah, this is excellent. Thank you. What do I need to do?